Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... We thought there was a a big enough opportunity there to essentially bring all of those different participants on a construction project from the owner and the builder down, the contractor down, to all the the subcontractors, the consultants, etc., to bring them onto a common platform. It was kind of like a Facebook for projects. 22 years ago, in the early days of the internet, a young McKinsey consultant and his good mate who was in the building game reckoned they could harness the internet to make construction projects more efficient and the processes more streamlined. Lee Jasper and Rob Philpot came up with the simple idea of building an online platform where all participants in a major project from the owner to the builder, the architect, to all the subcontractors, could all have access to every document associated with that project, be it the drawings, plans, specifications, invoices, even email trails, to allow much smoother communication and workflows. But more importantly, to eliminate the printout of thousands of hard copies of those documents so that all players in a collaborative project would be on the same page, speedily and digitally. So while still in their mid-twenties, Melbourne boys Lee Jasper and Rob Philpot created and launched digital platform A-Connects in 2001. Now, remember, this is a time when many in the building industry didn't even have the internet. And in less than two decades, the pair built their platform, AConnex, into an ASX 200 company, a world-leading SaaS or software-as-a-service business, servicing over 70,000 clients in construction, mining, infrastructure, engineering. Some recent Aconex projects include the giant Panama Canal third lock expansion and the Marina Bay Sands complex in Singapore Harbour. With Aconex, Jasper and Philpot revolutionised the entire project management of several global industries. Lee Jasper is now so passionate about the need to encourage entrepreneurs, he chairs Launch Vic, helping encourage a little more risk-taking in Australian startups. Hope you enjoy Lee Jasper. Lee Jasper, thanks so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Hi, Helen. Great to be with you. Now, you are involved in a few different ventures and startups and you're a tech investor these days, but I want to go back to the beginning of Aconex, the company you co-founded with a mate, Now, you'd completed your engineering and science degrees at Melbourne Uni, as I understand. You were only actually a couple of years out of university and you came up with this idea together. What was your idea back then and where did it spring from? Yes, well, it was, I guess, the early days of the internet when uh, when I left university and I worked at McKinsey & Company uh, for a couple of years. And at that stage, it was 98, 99, 2000, uh, many of our clients at McKinsey were starting to talk about or consider how the internet might uh, affect their businesses uh, and the opportunities that that might present. 
a mate of mine, Rob Philpot, was uh, working with Multiplex as a, as a builder. Uh, he was out running construction sites and I'd had the good fortune at McKinsey of doing several years essentially advising clients on, you know, on the internet essentially. Uh, and so we put our heads again and said, well, surely there's got to be a way to use the internet to streamline the construction industry and make it more efficient. So it was really the genesis of the idea. I don't think we really quite knew what that meant in terms of what the product would be, but the internet itself would provide an amazing opportunity to really change the industry and make it a lot better for everybody involved. How did you know that it needed streamlining, that it needed changing? I think uh, I was talking to Rob and anybody in the industry, it's quite an inefficient industry. It's a big industry, firstly, Mm. uh, but it's quite inefficient or can be quite inefficient. And the builders particularly are working on very low margins. So any time there's risk on a project, Mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, the builder ends up paying the price for that. So we thought there was a a big enough opportunity there to essentially bring all of those different participants on a construction project from the owner and the builder down, the contractor down to all the the subcontractors, the consultants, et cetera, to bring them onto a common platform. So it was really the the start of of Aconex where we we want to build a common system for everybody to interact on a project, kind of like Facebook. I mean, Facebook didn't exist at the time, but it was kind of like a Facebook for projects where everybody could come on uh, to a common platform, share information uh, and keep a track of what was happening on on the job. Right. So it was kind of like a one-stop shop. You describe it like Facebook, a one-stop shop of all participants, be it a massive project, a building or construction project, could access what the documents, and that would be massive amounts of contracts, plans, emails, invoices, and they could access it all in one place. Yeah, that's right. I mean, over time, we built out more of those, uh, you know, those different types of information. But initially, it was essentially the, the documents, the, the plans, and the correspondence, which included as you say, invoices, but things like requests for information, uh, changes to design, to design instructions. Uh, so the types of communication the industry uses, plus all the documentation, the plans, drawings, specifications, contracts, etc. So it was really a collaboration platform for managing the flow of information and taking that from the offline world, so hard copy world at the time, uh, onto the internet. And look, a lot of our early customers didn't I mean, they barely had the internet. Many of them didn't even have computers on site. So there's really? a real change in the way they thought about their job. And in the early days, selling the system was not just about selling you know, how good the system was or the company. It was actually explaining to some of our customers what the internet was. So it was really early days, wow. early days internet. And I mean, this is going back 20 years ago where yeah. you know, we were software as a service delivered over the internet. Really, it was quite new to have industry-based solutions delivered completely over the web. Yeah, and I imagine many of those people, like many of us back in 2000, were actually still so paper-based. You know, we needed to read things in hard copies. We needed to look, and presumably in the building industry, they needed to sort of see and feel and, and take plans out to the site and have the documents in their hands. So you were really upending, you were really disrupting that whole world. That's right. It was a, it was really moving all that those hard copy drawings into a into a digital environment. I mean, a lot of them. The good thing that was happening at the time was a lot of those drawings. So the information usually was produced digitally, but then so the architect would be yeah. using CAD software yes. for, for 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 designing. But then it would go into into a hard copy format. So it wasn't going into in digitally. So what we were able to do is essentially take those digital drawings, if you like, or digital plans and move them through the project. But one of the things we needed then and when we started, the internet was still quite slow. So we 
you know, when we started the business, a lot of people would still access the internet via dial-up modem. So we essentially were right at the start of the internet getting fast enough to be able to handle uh, vast you know, quantities of information. Actually, the other thing, we thought that projects would have you know, maybe tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 drawings. What what surprised us and was, I think, quite eye-opening was just the sheer quantity of information that's used. And we had some of our largest projects that were getting up into tens of millions of documents on the project, you know, mind-boggling amounts of information that they were somehow managing by hard copy. Uh, so it was a, a real change and an efficiency boost for these businesses. Plus, it also helped them manage their risks. So if you have a full order trail of all the documentation, you're able to see if there's a dispute or something goes wrong, you've got that order trail to, to back you up. Yeah. So you started this digital internet-based business or platform that was the business during the dot-com boom, didn't you? And then just before the bust, how did it add efficiency to the industry even in those first few years or, or did it add any efficiency? Well, it was a whole lot better than the alternative. So, uh, again, we're, we're talking about an industry that was was hard copy based, was using fax machines. Um, yeah. So, if we look at the way the system is today, it was barely better than email, but it was putting it into a format that the industry understood. So, it basically met the or was designed to replicate the processes that the industry already used uh, in, in the hard copy world, uh, but digitizing those processes. So, look, our early customers, I, we always found it was often hard to get in the first time, and that's why it's slow going in those early years. But once a customer, a contractor, or a developer used the platform, um, used the AKNX platform, they generally came back straight away. So it was very once we were onto a project, people could see the benefits, could see the efficiencies, and then they'd start to roll it across their other projects. And that was how we built the business. We sort of a land and expand model, if you like. We go in, get one project up and going, prove that the system worked yeah. by using it you know, for real, uh, and then expand it across other projects. The name, it's a great name, but it's unusual. How did you come across that? Well, originally, uh, we thought of ourselves as being uh, basically an information exchange. So, Australian Construction Exchange, yep. uh, which became Aconex, and we, uh, and partly we, we dropped the Australian Construction Exchange, uh, which we used to have as part of our logo, if you like, or our tagline, our, our name for the business, once we started to go international, because it was clear that we were far broader than just for Australia. But that was very sad. But also back then, we wanted to get a short name that we could get the .com for. So, there wasn't a whole lot of yeah. six-letter words you could find with .coms, even back then. Yeah. What funding did you have to start off with? And and I mean, did you and Rob just put money in? Did you leave McKinsey's to do this project or was it, oh, we'll just try it on the side as a business and see if it works? No, we, we essentially left uh, our respective jobs to build the business and we, I mean, we didn't take much or, or essentially no salary to start off with. We fund a little bit ourselves, but we're pretty young. So I was 26. So it's not like I had a big bank account to fund the business. Mm. But then we we raised, uh, we raised almost $2 million off the strength of the business plan. Again, it's a quite different world back then to what it is now. Nowadays, you can spin up a product. Uh, you can host it on AWS and take a product live with relatively you know, little investment compared with what we needed. We had to buy our hardware. We rented uh, space in, in a data center so we could put all the servers into the racks. We had to buy the software that we ran the system on. So there's a lot of upfront expense just to get, get the product to market. Yes, we raised a couple of million dollars from essentially high net worth individuals, a little bit of family, so the, the classic friends, fools, and um, and family. Mm. So we uh, <laughs> and uh, we yeah we ended up with uh, rather stitched together enough money to get going, and then we raised a further round a few months after September 11. But it was tough going. Often when we raised capital, something seemed to go wrong. September 11 on our second round, uh, one of our later rounds, we raised just before the GFC. So um, oh. we were sort of lucky along the way that we were able to raise money 
even yeah. though there were challenges in the world economy, we were able to, to get the get the capital raisings done. But we gave up a lot of the company. You know, back then, again, we couldn't get to market off fifty grand. We had to spend you know nearly a couple million dollars to get the product to market. Uh, so you know, you dilute quite a bit by doing that. But that was what we needed to do to build the business. Yeah. So how much did you give away roughly? Uh, we were well. So yeah, we I think we had a pre-money on the business of uh, four million dollars. So we essentially gave up a third day one, and then from there on, every every round we did, of course, diluted, uh, diluted yeah. us down. But but we all take a view that you're better to have a smaller percentage of something bigger, uh, and that we wanted to. It wasn't just about maximising our value; it was also about building a great business and having fun along the way. So. Doing that and having an impact on the industry meant that we were we sort of lean towards raising more to drive the business faster. Yeah. Uh, and look, in the end, it worked out well for our investors, and it was a good journey. But it was this sense of if we're out in front of the market, let's uh, let's invest to drive growth, really invest to take our our product and you know, our business model, if you like, global uh, to take it out into other markets. Yeah, but Lee, you say you were 26 when you raised two million bucks on the business plan. And that you did yep. leave McKinsey's and, and Rob left his job. So, I mean, you must have had a great deal of confidence in the product and in yourselves. Well, I think uh, we hadn't built the product, so there was no <laughs> way to really have any confidence in the product. But I think we had confidence in what we were trying to do in the yeah, industry. Yeah, in think, the plan. Yeah, I think, to be honest, we were probably quite naive as well. <laughs> That's overly confident, but yeah. we were able to bring in people that, uh, I mean, a lot of the early investors knew us in one way or another, so there's quite a few of the, the McKinsey directors invested in the company, uh, and I've worked with them at McKinsey. So. Yeah, so that helps. I mean, that you know, that's a great on your CV. Yeah, it was a great place to work at McKinsey to have people that were able to assist us in growing the business by investing and giving some advice and those sorts of things. But I think at the end of the day, invest, and we, I do this today when I invest, that a lot of what I'm looking for is a great idea and, 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 and a great business model, but ultimately it comes down to people. And if you haven't got good people running the business, you know, I think people trusted us and trusted that we'd do you know, everything we could to build the business. And um, so yeah, we were fortunate um, that people did back us. And we, uh, we uh, yeah, I guess looking back, we we're probably just very bloody lucky. But it was uh, at the time we we're probably slightly naive and slightly overconfident, but it worked out. What was your business model back then in that sort of 2000, 2001 in terms of how you're going to make dough out of this and has that changed or evolved? So we took a view that we would uh, operate on a subscription basis. So software as a service really wasn't called software as a service at the no. time. Uh, it was called ASP, so it's application service provider. But this concept of renting software rather than buying it and installing it uh, was just coming in. So we aligned immediately to that newer model, which most software today would be uh, would be bought on a software as a service basis where you, you pay a subscription for your, for your software. So we, we went straight to that model. And why is that better? Just to help listeners, why is software as a service better for both the business and presumably the user? So for the business, you get stability of revenue. Mm. So uh, in the sense that $100 this year is $100 next year or, or hopefully a bit more, uh, but you get that stability of, of revenue, uh, which I think is, is really important. So the problem with upfront software is you can get the sugar hit. Yeah. You know, somebody pays you the money now, but then next year you've got to resell something again to yep. somebody else or maybe the same customer to get that revenue back. So we like the certainty of the revenue. That and you get the, the continuity of revenue, presumably. And the continuity, yeah. Absolutely. And for investors, it's good because they, they get to see, they get their visibility on revenue as well. From a customer point of view, there's a couple of benefits. One is that they're not paying for it all up front. 
so the customer is paying for the software over time. The other thing, of course, because we we're delivering over the internet, was the customer's always on the latest version. So we just continually upgraded the software. It was just a perpetual process of, of re- releasing new features into the product. I think the other thing that customers often said to us is because, and we essentially gave customers the right to cancel any at any point um, in those early years, then if we weren't delivering, they could walk away. So it right. gave customers the ability to, Essentially, keep you know if we weren't delivering on our promise, they weren't locked in. So it was quite sort of worked for everybody. Um, I think the downside of not getting that sugar hit up front is you've got to raise you know potentially more money. But I think that pays back in terms of visibility of revenue and the certainty and the recurring nature of that revenue. Uh, but right. certainly a model that most software companies have moved to today. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, but this also shows it seems you were quite prescient back then because software as a service is very big now. Everybody talks about it and, and as you say, a lot of the big companies have moved to it. But I would have thought only in the last five or ten years. So you were thinking of it and, I mean, maybe it wasn't called that strictly speaking then, but is that what you were thinking of back in 2001? Yeah, we, we thought that was the way people should buy software. Uh, and it just seemed to us, again, we were young and we hadn't seen anything else, but it seemed to us a better way of delivering software to the industry. Particularly actually for our industry, it made a, a huge amount of sense to have people on a common platform and a platform they rented because with a construction project, if you install software and then three years later you finish that project, you go on to another project, well, yeah. it's very hard to move that software around. So it just seemed to make sense for our industry. Right. I don't know that we had any great insight other than seeing that a few other people were doing it. So we thought, well, we're better to go with what we consider to be the future. Yeah, right. So who else was doing it? I mean, there's companies like Salesforce um, yeah. were doing it at the time. And okay. They're obviously a lot smaller than they are now. Yeah. Um, so there's a few companies on, that were talking and promoting the, this model. But it took time. Though. I mean, we had to, you know, I still remember even 10 years ago, probably in five years ago, people would still, some customers still question why why they couldn't just have the software and yeah. install it. So not everybody necessarily understood why it was better for them straight up and we had to, to sell the benefits of that. But it certainly, you know, I think it's been proven that it's, um, I think just by the adoption across the market that it, it works for both customers and, and for the companies that are supplying the software. But I think actually one other thing on the internet was we we didn't, even though we're working on often remote construction sites, mining sites, et cetera, often customers say, well, can we have a local version that we can run? And we always took a view that the internet would be fast enough that we didn't want to build local software. What does local mean? So having your own your own version, so your own. Oh. Um, so so like in traditionally, you'd buy a box of software and install it, uh, install it on your own servers. We avoided that at all costs. We just said to our and, and met a few customers. You know, we probably lost over the years, but we took a view that we wanted to have it 100% delivered over the internet. We didn't want to have any installed software to run the system. Right. Uh, so that was quite different to how our competitors were doing at the time. And they were often bigger companies that were you know, doing some of what we were doing, but it provided us uh, you know, a, a differentiator as well from those other companies. Yeah, it's interesting because there were competitors, others doing it in the US and elsewhere, as I understand it. Your sort of product what made you think that a product in Australia could do better than them or at least as well? Or did you always think, we can do better than those others? Coming from Australia in construction is not a bad thing. So that was the, f- the first thing that we, uh, Australians, particularly in construction, and it's true in some other sectors like mining, oil and gas, et cetera. Australia is quite an early adopter of technology yeah. uh, and leads the world in terms of how we deliver. So things like, um, give me an example, things like uh, PPP, so public-private partnerships, mm. even uh, REITs, so real estate investment trusts, uh, those types of 
innovations have largely, you know, Australia's largely led the world in a lot of that. So it didn't seem too big a stretch, even when we spoke to international customers, that this would come out of Australia. I guess the other thing we took a view on was, well, if it works in Australia, why wouldn't it work somewhere mm. else? So just, you know, take it global from there. Actually, one other thing, a lot of Australians work overseas in construction. So when we went to places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, often Australians were running projects in those regions. So it, it linked nicely back to our customer base. So there's a lot of things that worked well uh, in helping us grow the business there. So just another, if you can just paint us a, a picture of the actual product. I know it wasn't developed right at the beginning, you sort of, and you added things along the way, but essentially the architect, the designers, the engineers, the uh, developers who are the perhaps the owners of the project in the beginning, the builders of the project, they can all access all the documents they all get equal access to them if they're allowed to be shared with those participants. Yeah, that's essentially it. So if I take an example, um, the architect might, uh, uh, they're designing another part of a building, so maybe they're working on the facade now, so they'll put up their facade drawings as, uh, as a preliminary design. Then the other consultants may need to approve that, so be, those drawings will go through a workflow to approve them right. and involve maybe the structural engineer, the mechanical engineer, they approve it, then it goes to the, the clients and the developers. So there's this flow of documents through the project as people are making decisions. And then once the consultant team has said, okay, we're all agreed, that's what the design looks like, then it would go to the contractor and and the contractor would would take that set of documents around the facade and then they might tender that out to the facade trade or subcontractor. So what they would then do is pass those drawings through the contractor onto the subcontractors uh, and then you may have multiple. So it's quite a – I mean, even – pre-Aconex, people were having to do this manually. So there's always been this network of people working on projects. And what you get on a typical size project, well, maybe a smaller, so multi hundred, a couple hundred million dollar project, you're going to have dozens of companies and sometimes thousands of users. On our very largest projects, like say the Panama Canal, third lock, that was about, I think it was about one or uh, certainly over one, maybe 2,000 companies uh, and something like 10,000 users. So these are vast networks of people trying to work mm. together to deliver these projects. Uh, and I honestly don't know how people did it without the internet. I, it, it just, to me, would have been almost impossible to run that by hard copy. So it was clearly more efficient. Exactly. I mean, how do we live our lives without the internet, really? But And yeah, Lee, right. <laughs> who pays in all that sort of matrix of people? Who pays you? We'd be paid by uh, either the owner or the contractor. And as you see, in the early days, we tried to work out what the best model was. So mm. should we have everybody paying for themselves? Mm. Should they pay per document? Or we, we wouldn't have a subscription base, but should they pay based on the number of documents? Should they pay based on how often they access the system, oh, how much they store? Yeah. And what we decided was that it was just too complicated. Yeah. So we made it really simple and just said, here's a fixed fee. The contractor or the owner will pay, yeah. and they'll pay it on behalf of the project. Uh, and so... All of the subcontractors, all of the consultants were included as part of that that fee. And what worked really well for us then was that we were essentially driving this network effect and getting more and more people on the system. And we were sort of happy to have subcontractors on for free, essentially, because those subcontractors might introduce us to another project. So it's a way of building out our network. So it was, again, good for the customer that they had a simple price paid on a monthly basis or quarterly or, or annually. Um, they could choose. They'd pay that fee, uh, include everybody, and then we'd benefit from building a, a large network of users. Just extraordinary, really. I mean, just a, I mean, a seemingly simple idea, really.
Lee, you could have had, no doubt, a rather stellar career at McKinsey's. Why back your own idea and want to go out on your own? Probably slightly naive in how much work it would be. And I think there was a view always uh, for both Rob and myself to, when we talked about things, to you know, to try and do something, uh, to, you know, to try and build a business. We both came from small business backgrounds. My father ran a, um, a small business up in northeast Victoria, a car business. And so that sense of building a business was just, you know, to some, mm. it was sort of what I grew up with. I um, mean, you know, that was quite, you know, it was a relatively small business that my parents ran. But So was he sort of entrepreneurial? And is that, do you think you got an entrepreneurial streak from your family? Well, he was quite entrepreneurial. He was a, a politician for many years as well. So he ended up in politics, but still ran the family business part-time on the side. My uncle ran the business day to day, but mm. it was... Yeah, it was just, I think we grew up with it. I was uh, very early on, I was working at the, in the service station, serving petrol. And so I think it was just always something we talked about. You know, my father was probably an early you know, invested in shares and we talk about those sorts of things. So it was just, a, I think, a natural conversation. But I, but I think also McKinsey, probably the other thing that really, uh, I think, encouraged Rob and I to go and do something was I had a great two years at McKinsey, really loved it. And we're really advising clients on what they should do with their business uh, strategically. And the thing was that sometimes we'd you know, give advice, but it wouldn't always be taken. I, and I think I, you know, I had a view that, well, rather than just giving the advice, maybe I should put some of that, that advice to work and, uh, and try and build something myself. And we started with a view to do that, you know, to build something, uh, to, to create a business. But mm. the other thing I think was it wasn't just about a business per se. It was also about being in a piece of technology that we believe would change the world. Oh, and yeah. It's sort of like, I don't know, being back in Detroit when the car industry is getting going and just this sense of the internet is going to change the way we operate across all sorts of different you know, parts of society and across business sectors. So why not be a part of that and try and do something? What do you reckon you learnt at McKinsey that you perhaps took with you to start and grow Aconex? A lot of things that we learned in terms of assessing businesses, um, strategically how to think about a market. McKinsey was kind of like getting, I'd come out of engineering, but it's almost like doing a sort of on-the-job MBA. I mean, you, you're looking at different sorts of industries, yeah, right. seeing how they operate. So I think, I mean, honestly, I'd say to anybody, the chance to work at a consulting firm like McKinsey straight out of uni is a great opportunity. I think the one thing that we probably perhaps didn't quite understand, but just it's taking a risk. So I think you know, McKinsey, I mean, clearly, there's a risk-taking element there, but we felt if we didn't do it, then uh, it might get harder. And I think you know we didn't. Yeah. We were young. We didn't. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have a mortgage. So if ever I was going to take that risk and step out of McKinsey, which is quite a, I mean, it's a great environment, but you know, you know, going and doing something myself was clearly more risky. But yeah. I felt that that was the best time to do it. And if it if it worked, great. Who knows what the future is? But if it doesn't work, you know, so be it. You know, there's still other things to do. And I think Australians, we don't. If I compare, say, to the US and you know, later uh, on the AKX journey, I lived in Silicon Valley for four years and just the risk-taking nature of Americans compared to Australians is clearly a lot higher. And I think it's something we can, as a, as a country, really encourage people to take risk. And one of my roles now is as, as the chair of Launch Vic, and, uh, which is a start Victorian startup agency, and trying to encourage people to take that risk and just provide a little bit of a support, a little bit of a nudge to get people over the line to take the risk, I think is just really important. You're the chair. It's a government organisation. What are you aiming to do there? The main thing is to really drive the ecosystem or help drive the ecosystem. So I just think there's, you know, what 
the startup sector and the technology sector can do in terms of job creation, particularly if you come out of the back of COVID, it's the sector that will create, in my view, jobs the fastest. You get a real multiplier effect. So mm. when you back a startup, a startup isn't just one person. Uh, it's you know, maybe one or a couple of people with an idea, but they end up employing teams to go and build those companies. And I think that's the you know, that ability to really drive changes in the ecosystem. As I said before, to take that risk, so we're trying to support the ecosystem at key points uh, where there's perhaps a little bit of a market breakdown. So, so an example of that is Australia isn't producing more early stage startups than it was probably 10 years ago. What we're doing now is we tend to be investing later, which mm. is not a bad thing, but it's just continuing to encourage those early stage startups, you know, literally seed, you know, seed investments uh, you know, straight out of the, the sort of gate type um, businesses to really encourage them and, and help them get to that next stage. But I think, you know, and I, I think all governments can do that. I think it's, you know, the federal government's got various programs. My view is always a dollar spent in helping startups repays, you know, many times. Just back to Aconex, what were those early years like and how did you get, firstly, the building and construction industries and then you expanded to other industries? How did you get them to use your product? How much of a struggle was it and for how long? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it, it was tough. I've got to say the, the hardest six to 12 months of my journey at Aconex was uh, when I was our only salesperson or our first salesperson, literally uh, our only salesperson for a while and then we started to build a team. It was hard. I mean, doing, we had to go out and speak to construction people. As I said before, they didn't often know, some of them didn't know what the internet mm. was. Some of those projects didn't have computers on site. So it's really still the technology adoption, you know, wasn't really there if you looked at it on face value. But what we did find with contractors is once they see a benefit, they're pretty practical people. Uh, if you think about who the first people to have mobile phones mm. alongside, I don't know, maybe the bankers and CEOs and whatever, it was often tradies uh, who were the first to get mobile phones because it helped their business. Uh, and we saw that with our product that while it had to be explained uh, and it was hard initially to sell, once people could see the benefit, they tended to be quite strong adopters of the, of the technology. But it was hard. You know, we had to go and sell. Uh, I'd you know, come into the office and I knew I had to make 20 odd calls to 20 potential customers. And what, just cold calling them? Literally just cold calling and get rejected a lot. And, but um, it was, yeah, it was hard. But then as we, as we started to get a few customers using it, we, you know, they then would talk to others and this network sort of gradually, gradually built. Yeah. And then it started to take off once it got easier and easier, of course. When was this by? Oh, so mid 2000s, it really, so. It was hard going through those first few years of so 2000. We launched product 2001. So 2001, two, three, four was pretty hard. Getting some customers, you know, raising a bit of money to keep going. Yeah. But it was pretty tough. But then it really started to inflect through sort of 2005 and six. And then the big thing for us was going into markets like Dubai in 2006 and seven. Okay. And we were, yeah, we almost, I mean, we couldn't keep up with the growth. It was just um, the company was going on to these incredible you know, huge sort of mega projects around the world. Yeah, so it was a great, it was a fun time. And then, of course, the GFC hit. All right. Well, before we get to that, I was going to say, I mean, the VC and private equity sectors and the tech sector, I mean, it was a little bit on the nose, definitely, after the tech crash in, what, 02. Mm. So did that affect you or were you too small at that stage? Well, I think it probably, well, I think it helped us. Is what happened was there were quite a few companies in our space funded, sort of through that 2000 period, you know, 99, 2000. And then 
some of them just didn't raise further money to get through them. But we, because we were small, we kind of built our team around a pretty small, right? So I'll give you an example. One of our competitors at the time had raised a couple hundred million dollars and they'd burnt through most of that, oh. not getting very far. So mm. it was just, there was, so the back end of the dot-com boom, there were some companies raising huge amounts of money and a few in our space, but they didn't really get through. And we were able to get through that difficult period. Uh, and then from, as I said, from some mid-2000s onwards, the business really started to grow and inflect. But that time where, yeah, it's it sort of the, the difficult economic environment uh, in tech after the dot-com crash actually made made it harder for our competitors, I think, because they were sort of structured around that type of, yeah. uh, they were spending a lot more than we were. We were quite lean uh, and able to use that to our advantage. Can you remember your first client? Yeah, a couple around the same time. So uh, one was uh, the Lyle McEwen Hospital in Adelaide. So that was a new hospital that's being built. Um, Hanson Yunkin was the client. We had uh, Eureka Tower in Melbourne uh, with Grocon uh, and then also Knox City with ProBuild. So that was sort of yeah. our well, three they're, first Yeah, they're projects. big projects. Yeah, big projects. We needed to go out to projects that were big enough for people to make the change. Right. So sometimes we couldn't go to the very largest projects, but neither did we want to go to the smaller projects where you wouldn't see the benefits. So where we tended to end up from a sales point of view was you know, at that stage it was projects that were $100, $200 million. So not small projects by any stretch, but not the very largest projects that, that, that were around. Yeah. Uh, over time, we then started to pick up a lot more of those bigger projects as well. But, uh, but they were great customers. You know, having customers like that that would – support us into those projects again they were taking a bit of a risk because we were an unproven system and they were prepared to to take that risk on the system uh, because they thought it would help their project and i guess they also trusted that we deliver for them and thankfully we mostly did did you always have big even global goals you said dubai when you went in there what in 06 2006 was that really the game changer we had a view early on that if we wanted to be a very large business in our sector, we had to go global and the, the, the Australian economy, and even though construction is a big sector, just isn't big enough to support a, uh, a very large business given we're quite a, you know, a niche within that industry. So I think we, we had a view that we'd go global. I think we, in our first business plan, we probably have to pull it out, but I'm pretty sure we thought we'd be bigger than Microsoft. And then reality set in once we tried, <laughs> tried to build the business and then we're much more subdued in our, uh, in our ambitions. And I think our second business plan basically had us just doing it in Australia and by sort of our third business plan, third capital raise, we're then starting to expand globally. But one of the things that also helped us was some of our customers like Multiplex, uh, they were working overseas. Grocom yeah. was working in the Middle East. Multiplex was working in the Middle East, also in London. So we essentially used or worked with our customers to expand into those markets. And it was not quite a cold start in the sense that we were able to use those relationships uh, to bridge across into those markets. Yeah, but how were you storing all these millions and tens of millions of documents and, and data? When did that become part of your business? Because there was no cloud back then, was there? Well, we essentially were our own cloud, if that kind of makes sense. So what right. we did was the internet was there, but rather than use an AWS or an Azure, Microsoft Azure to, to store our information, we essentially bought our own hardware. So we had our hardware in a data center connected to the internet uh, and we'd store all those documents right. on, our, on our own servers. Um, so we were essentially our own cloud provider. Uh, we had to do it all ourselves because there were no services that did it. Whenever we had to do an upgrade or whatever, we'd, we'd upgrade the systems. Um, if we had to do a hardware upgrade, it meant somebody would go down to the data center and put new boxes in, you know, new actual physical equipment right. into the racks. So it was, 
yeah, it was sort of early days internet, but it was uh, it was the only way to do it back then. And then one of the things that actually got challenged when we went global was just the speed. The internet can go faster, but to move data to the other side of the world, it can't go faster, well, it can't go faster than the speed of light. There's a certain limitation on how fast you can move electrons through a wire. So even, you know, having our hosting systems in Australia, we found it wasn't, we had a delay with people coming to the system from London. So we ended up essentially having to put servers in other markets. And the other thing is just risk, the internet again wasn't as strong as it is today. In places like Dubai, if your cable going in or out of Dubai doesn't have the capacity, then we'd lose connectivity to our servers, which meant, again, we had to put local installations around uh, around different markets. So it's quite a working out as we went. We didn't always know, but we, we I guess we had a view that we could somehow muddle our way through and find a solution to whatever whatever problem would come up. Yeah. Lee, you had a pretty large capital raising in 2008, uh, over 100 million bucks, and US venture capital came into your business. Now, was that a crucial step that helped catapult Connects into really strong growth? What did that give you? Well, the first thing, it helped us survive because <laughs> we got that money literally right before the GFC. Oh, um, right. We to be honest, I, I don't know if we would have – I guess we would have found a way, but it would have been a very different business without that money. And once I just saw the GFC, not months, like literally days. So we oh. closed the, the investment, I guess, two to three weeks before the, oh. before Lehman went down. But we still hadn't received the money, so we're still waiting on that uh, money to come through from the investor as Lehman was going down. Uh, so wow, it was, and they didn't pull out. No, well, I, I, to their credit, I mean, they, we'd signed – you know, we'd signed agreements and uh, I guess I shouldn't have pulled out, but they possibly could have. Yeah. They honoured the agreement and uh, they were a good investor over those years. But what did enable us? Well, firstly, enable us to survive because we had more cash on the balance sheet to go through uh, the start of the GFC. And we didn't go backwards, but we certainly we were going 100% year over year pre-GFC and that slowed right down before we re- just re-accelerated it. So it was a difficult period, but then what allowed us really to do was to expand to the US. Mm. So we hadn't hadn't really hit the US very hard up until then. We'd, we'd primarily expand into Middle East, Asia and Europe. And so that funding and, they, and also having the presence through, with an American investor allowed us to, to expand into the US market. Uh, quite a few of the team, including myself, moved over uh, to San Francisco. Uh, so we, we were over there as we were doing the US market. I think it's actually one thing for Australian businesses, it's quite hard to build into the US from Australia. We think America's the same. It's not the same. And it might only be 5% different, but that 5% different could be really different. Yeah. So we found it was really useful to be on the ground and to really understand the market. Yeah. So how did you manage that scale up? I mean, you obviously had to grow your teams. You're in another country. Your employees are changing rapidly. How challenging was that internal scale up? It was tough. I mean, it was, it's always hard to when you when you need to hire a lot of people. Uh, I think we we spent a lot of time thinking about our culture and the types of values, and so that was always that culture in terms of the culture we wanted in the business was we were quite purposeful about that. So that that helped. And what was it? Things like challenging what's accepted. That was one of our values. We really wanted people to challenge how we were doing things. Another one was getting on with it. So we wanted it. We we didn't want to endlessly uh, analyze things. We had to move quickly putting the customer first. We really put a lot of focus on the customer. Being passionate, having fun. So we wanted a team that could you know, have fun together. We're going to be building this business and working a lot. Yeah. We want to make sure that it's a great environment to work together. So we, we tried to hire people aligned to that. I mean, the toughest thing was hiring overseas. So we, we would often use somebody from the existing team would go over into a market first and then we'd build around that person, which reduced the risk a little bit. We traveled a lot. I mean, we had offices spread People spread all over the world, so we, we did a lot of travel um, just to stay connected to the team. 
Yeah, and also brought the team together quite regularly. Again, you know, last year would have been hard to do that, but it was all pre-COVID. So bringing our entire uh, team together for a, a conference, you know, those sorts of things really to keep the glue between the team and having this common culture, this culture that we, uh, and sometimes a bit of an Australian culture, that kind of slightly irreverent and just get on with it. You know, we're, we're here to do it. We're not here to, to waste time. Actually, in the early days, I often used to look for people who'd travelled and backpacked a lot. So we were all young and uh, we had, when we were looking for people to, to join the team, we wanted people who were quite flexible, had travelled a lot, had seen different cultures, were adaptable. So that was the sort of people we were looking for to join the business. Yeah. So what are some of the global projects that you worked on and how were they assisted by Aconnect Software? You mentioned the Panama Canal before. Yes, the Panama Canal to build their third lock, third mm. set of locks. That was a big one. It was a probably five to ten billion dollar project. Obviously, a, a pretty iconic project to start uh, giving the Panama Canal itself. And um, some of the great ones like the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. So it's a hotel uh, casino. Oh, the big dominant one in Singapore Harbour there. Yeah, with the three sort of pillars yes. and the, it looks like a boat on the top. And actually, that project uh, was one of the largest ever in terms of documentation. Uh, I think they capped out something like 40 or 50 million documents on that one project. Um, so, yeah, phenomenal projects. Um, in Dubai, we did Dubai Metro. We did the airport. Abu Dhabi, we did Yas Island, which is where they have the Grand Prix. Uh, so all these mega projects all over the world. We, I mean, if, if there was a big project that needed to coordinate its team, then – you know, we were, still are, the best system for doing that. Our first mega project was the Venetian Casino, Macau. And again, just such big projects that they could, I, I don't know how they would have managed it without Aconex. That was what we looked for, those those projects. That's why places like Dubai, Hong Kong, other cities in the Middle East, which are growing fast, where these big projects were able to go in and, and help them. Say airports, rail projects, big you know, hotel, casino developments, uh, hospitals, big hospitals, um, the big hospitals all around. So obviously, yeah, you were doing something right because customers kept coming back. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we didn't get everything right, got a lot wrong, but we learned from it and we adapted. And uh, I think, again, we were better than, far better than the alternatives, particularly hard copy doing things the old way. Uh, and I think also compared to some of our competitors at the time, we put such a focus on the customer and making sure they're happy. The selling didn't stop when somebody signed a purchase order uh, to buy the, buy the solution. You really had to support your customer all the way through. And if our customers were happy, they were going to bring other projects back. One of the things we did in our model, which was quite different, is we gave unlimited support. She basically said to our customers, we will support you, we'll train you, we'll do whatever you need to make this project work. And this sense of giving unlimited support to our customers meant that we were able to create or help our customers deliver great projects and create real loyalty among that customer base, uh, which brought them back. In part two of our chat next week, Lee Jasper reveals just how difficult it was going public, the lessons from listing on the Australian Securities Exchange, why he sold to the US giant Oracle and why it's critical for Australia to back startups. Join me then. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.